Welcome to the Good People Podcast, where each episode we explore what it means to be good by talking to everyday heroes, philanthropists, altruists, and do-gooders. I'm Kelsey Timmerman, author of Where Am I Giving? A global adventure exploring how to use your gifts and talents to make a difference. Today, we're talking about mission trips. So mission trips represent a $2.5 to $5 billion industry. What good do they do? That's an important question. What harm do they do? Also an important question. Both those questions should be asked of all aid and development. For years, I've been traveling to developing countries where often the only other foreigners are missionaries and mercenaries. I've been mistaken for both, which is which is laughable in the mercenary department, right? Like if you know me, um, my blonde hair and blue eyes, I really don't like – I couldn't really infiltrate or blend in anywhere, maybe some lawless Nordic nation. I don't know. Um, so you, you definitely can find better um, mercenaries than me. I suppose people have thought I've been a missionary before. Uh, the first missionary I ever met was this guy at an internet cafe in Honduras. He was from Florida and came to spread the word after his wife died. He ran a school for girls and was getting ready to head back to Florida and was faced with the tough decision of which 18-year-old girl he was going to take back to the States to marry. Nice, huh? Not bad for an old man, huh? That's kind of what he said, right? That was his demeanor, like, and and I hated him. And after that point, I kind of tried to like avoid people who looked like me when I was in a developing country. And often, um, people who look like me, there's a reason that they're kind of in um, out of the way corners of developing countries, and this is one of those reasons. They're for, on a mission, right? On a mission from God, as the Blue Brothers would say. So since then, I've seen the good that can be done when people who share a faith work together. And you know, they, they have this thing in common. I think Justin Arducci from um, uh, LifeWater, right? They, they, he shares – he works – they work with churches already. He's not trying to convert anyone. They already share this thing and they can use that thing to get down to work and have this bond and they can worship together and then they can do the wells and they can do the sanitation. And, um, and I think Justin's a guy that asks like really, really important questions about impact and he's, he doesn't seem to be trying to win souls and he's trying to help people live dignified lives free of disease and like, I really believe in his work and I've seen it firsthand and had great conversations with Justin and, and I think what he's doing is great. And and people go with him at times and, and I suppose they could call that a mission trip. It's not the, kind of the tourism variety though. They don't really just let anyone go on a life water trip. So this this whole idea of going on, a, on, on any kind of mm, mission trip or service trip. Uh, I think we have to kind of question the intentions of that and then the impact that we can make. So I guess to kind of to best sum up my thoughts, I'll quote a sociologist, Judith Lasker, who wrote this in the Chronicle of Philanthropy. So throughout the world, there are many, many places that get excellent, dedicated medical care from church group missionaries. I don't want to diminish that. I don't want to neglect that. But if you have to listen to a sermon or go to a movie or pray before you can get treated – I have a problem with that. My impression is that most faith-based groups do not do that. Many faith-based groups and people that I've talked with strongly oppose doing that. They feel that religious faith motivates them to make the world a better place and serve the poor. So that's what Judith Lasker had to say. And and I I mean I agree with everything she wrote. But I guess I'm not quite done with my thoughts. I have more thoughts. Um, So when evangelizing is involved, it's an attempt to take advantage of people's poverty, like to colonize their souls. And Gandhi said to a man with an empty stomach, food is God. And and I just know that I would worship whatever God you offered me if my kids were hungry and you had some pancakes, right? So my friend Liz Boltz Ranfeld, who's today's guest, went on a mission trip in the early 2000s, like the worst kind, the, the soul winning type of mission trips. Um, and here's the actual listing for the trip. So Liz shared this with me. And here it is. Project Nepal Church Planting. Hundreds of unreached villages lie hidden among the highest peaks in the world. Spend two months trekking atop this mountain chain establishing Christian fellowships along the way. So Liz was a teenager and she went on this trip. And now she's a writer and English teacher. And she's still trying to process these experiences, those experiences she had 
when she was a teenager in Nepal. So she shared some of her writings with me. So here's what Liz writes as she's trying to process this. I am not proud of the reason I went to Nepal. I was a teenage missionary with a sketchy youth organization called Teen Mania. I was there in the summers of 98 and 99 for two-month stretches of time. In 98, there were four teams of us, and we spent our days going to towns and villages doing evangelistic dramas meant to convert people to Christianity. Then in 99, I was on a much smaller team of just 18 teenagers, and we lived in a single village with the misguided intention to plant a church. There's a lot to the story of what we did there that was unethical and what was questionable and a very small handful of things that may have been good. So that's what Liz writes. So Liz invited Jay and me to her house to discuss this more, and that's what this episode is. And today I'm joined by my friend Jay Mormon. Hey, Kelsey. How you doing, Jay? I'm great. <laughs> and we have a special guest today, Liz Ranfeld. Welcome to the podcast, Liz. Yeah, this is the first live live podcast because we're not uh, we're not uh, doing it in remote locations. I'm not sure if good people invite themselves to someone's home, but well, we did, 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 right? Yeah. Yep. And then I'm like, hey, can I bring some beer? And Liz said... Well, I'm not a beer drinker, but I can make you guys white Russians. That's pretty good, yes. right? Yeah, they so I think she's, okay, good. she's definitely good people, uh, a good host. So uh, Liz and I, I don't know how long we've known each other. Our kids years. go to the same school, just kind of in certain circles. I think we knew each other. Writing conferences, mm-hmm. the writing world. Um, and getting to know Liz a little bit, I learned that Liz... Um, had been on a missions trip to Nepal in the same valley that uh, I had visited. In t- I was there in 2001. When, when were you there? I was there in 1999. Yeah. Yeah. So what were the circumstances of your visit? What was that like? Well, I was really involved. So first of all, I was 16 years old. Um, and I was involved in a youth missions organization that is now defunct. They, they were called Teen Mania. I can say that. They uh-huh. don't exist anymore. Um, and there were maniacs were the yes maniacs yes. you called so the the teenage so basically this organization took teenagers all over the world every summer um mostly doing uh evangelistic dramas so that you would you would go from town to town with your team of maybe 20 people and you would perform a skit to a 20 minute skit that was supposed to represent the story of uh Jesus Christ um with translated uh you know it had it had a track for each each country and that's mostly what they did and that's when I got involved um, I was about 11 years old when I got involved with wow. that organization um, and started going overseas with them when I was uh, 14 and traveled with them several summers uh, the summer that we're talking about um, was uh, my second summer in Nepal and that was the elite team because mm. we didn't do dramas we were we we like graduated from that that was kind of the attitude. And we were there uh, for two months, and um, it's kind of hard to say it now what we were doing because uh, it feels pretty sketchy and pretty there, – there, I have a lot of – Yeah, so, but like how – Yeah. I, I, you shared some of your writing about it. It was yeah. really fantastic. Thanks. Uh, how – like just take me back to the mindset when you're 16 years sure. old. Like how did you feel – when you were training to go and, and do this thing in Nepal and, and what was that emotion yeah. like? Um, I mean, I think that, yeah, we all thought that this was the most important thing you could possibly be doing. Um, we, uh, and when I, when I say we, I mean the people that I was close to in this organization. So teenagers from all over the country, we'd come together and do this stuff in the summer. And um, it felt really important um, we had also had leaders from our churches, this organization, telling us that uh, not only was it important, but that <laughs> really you can't underestimate this, this. You cannot. Hell played a big role. Mm. Um, and so our involvement was to save people from hell. And if we didn't go, wow, it would be our fault on Judgment Day when... Um, the people of Nepal or the people of whatever country went to hell. <laughs> wow, that and that's that's quite a burden to carry at that it's yeah, a, at that age. It's a ridiculous burden to put on. I mean, and remember, I got involved at eleven to 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 
put on an 11 year old. Um, so just, I just want to clarify, cause we, we ran right into this. Sure. So you were going there not to, you know, um, you know, put a roof on no. or to build a house or to work on clean water or some of the other things we've talked about in the past. You were there to save souls. Right. That was, was the an, point of the trip. This was not a service trip. This was not a volunteering trip. This was go live in a village for two months and, quote, plant a church. Wow. Okay. Right. Yeah. So it was entirely it was entirely based on evangelism, missions, um, and, yeah, saving souls. I think so in that's... terms of mission and purpose, you feel like this is, like, the thing. Like, this is what – this is, like, the most important thing that you possibly could do. That's what your 16-year-old self yes. is thinking Absolutely. at that moment. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So what the heck was the play? I did that play in Nepal. Oh, okay. I did it in Australia. Well, I did it in Nepal. Wow. Um, but then I went to Nepal two summers. So I'd been in 98 on a, mission, on a drama team. Um, let's see. It was called The Journey. And it... Um... it don't stop believing? No. Oh, I'm sorry. Don't. No. Do not bring, <laughs> bring Journey into this. It was actually a musical to that. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, wow. <laughs> no. Uh, so it was about, like I said, about 20 minutes long. And um, so there were, you know, it was all... It was all through like dance and choreography, and so you had a character that gets created by kind of a god character, and this man, he's called the Journeyman. He um, goes and interacts with different people around. Um, sorry, I'm having to reach like 20 years yeah, to right. try to go with this. That's amazing. I don't know. Maybe back, it's, though, right? yeah. It's it's a you know it's an allegory for um, kind of what's the word. Um, Substitutionary atonement theology, I believe, is wow. what it's called. I have no idea what that is. But. In other words, uh, the guy sins. He kills someone. He has stains on his hands. These red gloves. He can't get them off. He goes from place to place. He goes to people that party. He tries to drink, drink and get rid of them. He tries to get power to get rid of them. He tries to do intellect. Try mm. to get the get the gloves off through intellect. Um, can't get the gloves off. Can't get the gloves off at college. Can't get the gloves off by doing uh, wow. by being powerful. Um, and then I honestly forget how the Jesus character why they kill him but there's a jesus character that gets killed and takes on the gloves and then comes back to life and sure and, yeah. and of course all of this is narrated with this nice it's just the big the big metaphor for sacrificing grace basically right yeah. right got it yep yeah wow that's, that's heavy <laughs> i don't know i'd be talking about that part yeah <laughs> no and i but i i think that's relevant because um you know everybody's going to have their own opinion about that while you two drink your white russians mm. yeah i had to take a drink yeah <laughs> that's what i've been that. doing while you were talking um but but this is this is something that people are very motivated by right and i and, yeah. and kelsey and i've privately talked a lot and somewhat in the podcast about just the relevance of going to work on uh, humanitarian issues like mm -hmm. housing or water versus the sort of evangelical trips where um and I think we've got some future podcasts coming up. We're going to talk to people about that, uh, a similar uh, stream. But just you felt like you were doing good, yeah. right? You were taught you were doing good. Maybe more good than clean water. Oh, absolutely. Because, because it's eternal. It, because it's eternal. And so the idea was um, you know, we, we might have asked the question. I was very quietly questioning all of this while I was there. It wasn't showing up in my diaries. It wasn't showing up in what I said, but it's it's um, because I was terrified to acknowledge those questions while I was you know experiencing this because I was told this is the most important thing. This is eternity. Um, but let's say I'd had the question, well, why aren't we um, teaching English? Why aren't we putting a roof on a building? Why aren't we um, providing medical care, so, you know, like a first aid somewhere, you know, why aren't we doing any of these things? And the answer that the organization and that our leaders and the people that we looked up to that were, you know, these very important authority figures, the answer they would have given is that you can only help a few people with something like that versus if you do these dramas and you go from town to town and you see and you perform the drama six times a day. And you perform that drama to, you know, 500 people each time, depending on how many people show up in that crowd. You're having a much larger eternal impact wow. than what you could do by giving, by, by digging a well somewhere. Wow. Um, and so, um, and there are, I mean, I know there are trips that are 
kind of a blended service evangelism yeah. thing. And and I know those exist and I and I my experience hasn't really been with those, so I don't feel like I can speak to the yeah. um to those too much. Uh what I can speak to is that very specific youth missions movement of you are here to save souls. Like, was there a way when you left the, when you left the place that you were like, that was a good one? Like, we've got three people? Or was there any sort of metric that you that measured? Um, the organization said the metric measured was uh, people who said that they had converted to Christianity and that it was numbers-based and that, if you, that a successful trip was based on the number of people who said when you left – or who filled out a card at a at a you know and gave it to a church. You, you might have people from a local church that would be yeah. with you. Um, that was the metric that they used. So it was very analytical then, right? Yes. It's very like a like a number, like it was... right. And, and and I don't. <laughs> um... Ish. Well, I mean, saying that they had a very hard number. I don't know what the right. number was. It was self-identified number. Yes, right. Exactly. They would say if even one person okay. is affected and changed, then you've done a good thing. Yeah. But, of course, the goal was they wanted to be able to say 30,000 people this summer because we sent 3,000 teenagers overseas, 30,000 people um, became Christians. That, yeah. That's what they wanted to say So, the end. So here I'm going to get – I'm going to th- throw some controversy in this. Oh, I'm ready. Okay. Yeah. So this is an argument I've had with people over time is that if you truly believe that hell is real, if you truly believe that, you are absolutely doing the most good because not having health care or clean water or a home for the few years you're on this planet does not compare with eternity and the sort of torture that is supposed to come from that eternity. Now, I will also say as the the, uh, atheist in the room, that that's crazy, and we we, we need mm-hmm. to we as a, as a world have to move past that idea. But but to be consistent, I mean they're doing what they believe is the best, and if you look at it on on paper in black and white based on that belief system, that is the best yeah. thing they can do. However, I we can disagree with that. I don't know that I would call it good. Isn't that why you can? Con- the logic of that argument is why you can convince 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15-year-olds mm. that that's the case. Right. I don't know that adults should be going around with that. But they do. But they do. And at the same time, I do know I do know people that I think believe in hell who do good things and they're service-driven and they're, they're driven by alleviating suffering mm-hmm. right. in the here and now. So I know right. that they exist. I've come around to a place where I don't believe in a hell. I don't believe in a literal hell. And so it's very freeing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, one of the things that gets me – so, I mean, I, my, many of the criticisms we're making other than, like, the spiritual ones yeah. I think could be <laughs> held um, – can, can be applied to just aid and development in general – as well like well what good are we actually doing or or uh, one, one thing that keeps popping up in my mind is like you're flying all the way to nepal just think of all the all the non-believers jay that you're flying over from here you know wouldn't it be more efficient to just like be in your own backyard doing doing that work but yeah did they talk about that at all i mean did you talk about why other nationalities and other cultures and other societies and other religions were a priority do you sure. think that was a does that come back to race, possibly, or how do you th- how yes. do you think that was positioned? <laughs> uh, she's not sure on that one. <laughs> um, okay, I think there are two answers. I think that the answer that would be given, which I don't, I'm not going to reject altogether. I'm not going to say they're totally wrong. Um, the answer that they would have given, um, and the answer I would have answered at that time, um, would have been that there are plenty of opportunities uh, in the United States of America to hear the story of Jesus, and if you there's not the um that it's that the that the possibility exists the opportunity is there and if you're if you don't hear it, it's it's cuz you're choosing not to um they would have said and i would have said that that opportunity doesn't exist in other places in the world and so it's important to be the person who will go to where that opportunity doesn't exist yeah and i and i've heard that that argument before which is the if you've heard anything about jesus christ that was your chance right we're in nepal it's very possible or china or someone else you may not have even heard well, I, okay that makes been, i understand that wouldn't that's another theological question if it if it comes down to well if you've heard 
even one time and you didn't convert, then you're damned. Mm. But if but then there were some that would say, but if you never heard, maybe then there was a chance. If you never heard, then it would yeah. be natural. So there was there yeah, were these you're, conversations. You're just falling downstairs. Oh at this yeah. Point. yeah, but but your question of of the the question of race is really important um, because I've wanted to believe that the that the um, kind of ethnocentric and the xenophobic and all these different things parts of it, I've wanted to believe that, that was kind of under the surface, right? That it was oh yeah, it was probably there. It's probably in the history of it, but it wasn't you know everywhere. Um, you know, I've read through some. I've read through some of my diaries recently, and um, we were all encouraged to be journalists. We were, we all documented everything, and which is great for a writer twenty years later. Um, yeah. <laughs> but no, it wasn't it wasn't below the surface. It was like that was <laughs> we were submerged in it. Um, just the idea of I mean I remember specifically Nepal is so dark. It's so apathetic. The nation has no you know there's no light there and there's demons and and I mean this language and it was wow. it was you know it was very much I mean that was that was the narrative and we were going to be the light mm. and uh, we were very confident. It's amazing how different like when I when I went to Nepal 2001 I was flying from Thailand. I happened to sit next to a monk on a plane, and he was like, "Where are you staying in Kathmandu?" And I'm like, "I don't really make it, <laughs> make plans. I don't have any idea." He's like, "Will you come stay with me?" And so he ended up being uh, the head of this lamasery in Farping. Yeah. That um, you know, they teach kids to be monks, and they take them in, and it's just a school too. I think it's kind of just like a um, a Buddhist school mm-hmm. as well. Not I don't think all the kids become monks, but there's people that are meditating for years and. And uh, I was there for three weeks um, and stayed out in this, this valley and just got to really appreciate the culture in another way of seeing the world. And I think that's one of the things that for me has been really hard as I've come in contact with missionaries before because often coming in with this idea of trying to get the rest of the world to see the world like you see it, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, and I just really embraced the the – this new way of seeing the world and I was reading books on on Buddhism that my monk friend Kempo bought me and they'd wake up at like four in the morning to be chanting and um so when you were there in the valley like what was your experience what was your day-to-day sure. like what were you doing there well, it comes in handy that I just reread these diaries right yeah I'm very much in that uh place right now um there were 18 of us including our two leaders who were um I think 21. Uh, they were in charge of everything. And um, we also lived with uh, four, we had four um, translators or contacts, or, as they were called, two of whom spoke English, two of whom didn't. Mm. So they weren't exactly translators, but they were Nepali, uh, two Nepali men and two Nepali women who lived there to, uh, with, with us in the house. And they were, they're evangelical Christians, missionaries themselves. Um. So we would split into groups, uh, your ministry group for the summer. You'd be in the same group all summer, about four, three or four people, and um, go out and walk around and talk to people and say, is there anything we can help you with today? Um, and, you know, you might pull some weeds. You might move some limbs from a tree. You might mostly people just wanted to invite us in and give us tea and, and oh, yeah. popcorn and yeah. and um, you know it was it, it, you know we were an oddity and that, that was you know that was fine. Um, at times we did a we did a few um, practical things you know like like um, moving a tree limb from one part mm-hmm. of a property to another. I mean yeah here's some here's some teenagers go do that. I mean <laughs> I don't think that was like a morally wrong thing to do i don't i don't know that there was you know uh but of course all of that was designed to hopefully be able to begin to be welcomed in people's homes uh and to when you had a translator with your group um start sharing the uh gospel message or or the, the the lessons we were expected to share and then invite people back to the house hold on that's really annoying Sorry, my dog. Oh no, it's, no, it's fine. That's no, fine. That. And okay, even good. if we do, it's not a big deal. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it was. Uh, but it was. It was the. 
it was the light bit of service that got you accepted yes. into the community. Light bit of service and the fact that it was unusual and, and f- you know, people thought it was fun to have the, look at these American yeah. teenagers. Let's, let's. Yeah. Yeah. Did you get the sense there was anything? Um, so some of the experiences I've had um, myself and then through my wife as well is that, you know, sometimes having people from the United States, especially a more um, prospered uh, country uh, with the sort of wealth we have for places that are impoverished what we we have heard a lot is well it gives us hope that there's something bigger and that that the world is better there are places that are better and we might get better someday mm-hmm. too it not on the eternal sense but just did you get any sense of that you know they would ask you about they look at your clothes or look at wonder how healthy you are or looking at trying to ask you about your home. Did you sense any of that sort of hope bringing that it may have brought to people? If that was a conversation that was happening, it wasn't something I was aware of. Or if that was, I mean, there were certainly, they, they wanted to look at our pictures. Most of us printed pictures mm. and you know had photos and they would want to look at those. Right, or, that seems natural. Yeah, yeah. and uh, um, yeah, ask us questions about music and uh, school and um questions about America, that sort of thing. Uh, because we didn't, we often didn't have any translators with us, mm. um, there weren't a lot of very rich conversations taking place. Mm. Um, even if you uh, were able to cross um, the social barriers and the issues related to American, rich American teenager sitting in the home of um, you know, a rural Nepalese farmer um, even if you were to take away the social issues in the language, like there, there was no conversation taking place. So it was more like, here, I'll sing a little song. You sing a little song. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a cute kid. Let's play with that cute kid. Yeah. That, yeah. Um, so that may have been happening, but it wasn't part of what uh, I was aware of. So talk about the, there's a girl who burnt her arm. Yeah. Tell, tell me about that experience. Sure. Um, I've often called this one of the things that I can point to. Where I said, okay, this is the good thing. This is the one good thing. I can point to a lot of bad things. This mm-hmm. is the one good thing. I think. <laughs> um, we, on one of these walks, uh, we were walking and uh, met a little girl um, who uh, had her arm covered in a, like a handkerchief. And um, she, oftentimes kids would take us back to their houses and then introduce us to their parents. That was kind of the, the, that was the end. Yeah, that was yeah. the end. Right? I, I use the same thing when I'm trying to okay. get stories. I take a Frisbee. I oh, play yeah, with the play, kids. Dance. I'm back in someone's home. And then it's like, hey, yeah. nice to meet you. So I think this girl was probably about nine years old. Um, and she she and her siblings brought us back to the house. And um, turns out she had a few weeks earlier um, been burned uh, in a grease fire. So some uh, they have a newborn baby and they were heating some oil related to the baby. I don't really remember the story, but they were heating some oil and she, something happened and the the oil had, 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 the grease had gone over her arm and burned her really badly. And because she had just kept it up against, you know, they, they just, she just kept it up against her, um, kind of bent in, uh, the skin had even just in a few weeks, the, the scarring that had begun to, um, I'm trying to describe, you know, in, in the wrist, in her wrist, it had, it had really, it was a, it was an ugly burn. It was, it was mm. mean looking. Mm. And, um, we did have one person on our trip who was <laughs> our most experienced medical professional. Who was How was he? He was 19 years okay. old. He was a pre-med major and had been through a first aid course. <laughs> oh. Um, and a group of teenagers, that's pretty great. I know. I know. It was that like a doctor. That's yeah, really? the closest we had. Um, but that actually, that could be a tangent. Uh, there are issues with, you know, Americans going overseas and, and performing medical, mm. uh, doing medical tasks that they have no business doing. Mm-hmm. This was first aid. This was not, yeah. um, I would not call this medical treatment exactly. Uh, and so we were able to come back with, uh, we, we had a big first aid kit, and so we were able to come back, and he knew how to um, very slowly with warm, with, with warm water that had been boiled, so, you know, clean water, uh, to very slowly remove that um existing burn uh around her wrist um and what had built up that was you know hadn't had, she hadn't had any 
um, wrapping or dressing for it. And so it had, you know, it had gotten, uh, it had been exposed to the elements. Um, and then wrap it in, we were able to give them burn ointment, which no one seemed to have. Yeah. Um, we were pretty far from any sort of medical facility. I mean, we were, um, I can't tell you what they had access to and what they didn't. I just know that she had not received any medical mm-hmm. treatment. And um, so we gave them all the stuff. They kept it clean. They kept the burn clean. And by the end of the summer, I mean, she had full movement back and uh, had healed a lot. And she, you know, I, I have to think that I have to think that, that was the right place at the right time with the right things. Sure. And and did that offer a contrast to you? I mean, in your mind, you, that versus soul saving. Yeah, I mean, it's tangible. You could feel her pain and the, what could have been a disfigurement for her, and and all of a sudden you were able to bring something to her that had some tangible impact. Yeah, I think that's probably part of why I've held on to that. As sure, um, you remembered that very clearly, right? And yeah. to and and when I look back at those experiences and I and I write about those experiences and I'm trying to talk about that. I mean, most of what I feel is, is an extreme, you know, shame over that involvement in that movement. Um, there are a few moments like that where I'm like, okay, I have to hold on to that, that it wasn't just all mm-hmm. suspect. Right. Right. And so do you, do you think about, I mean, gosh, it's, it's so tough because you interact with people that are trying to do that. And there's so much need overseas in so many places. And there's need here too, right? Kelsey, to your point. And I know that's in the book too, in your book is, you know, serve locally. Um, Certainly you've seen your fair share outside of, um, you know, North America as well. But um, when you hear people are serving in that way and they're, they're heading somewhere to do something, um, you know, what kind of advice would you give to someone who is, Who's in, and maybe not as evangelical or maybe not as mm-hmm. um, extreme that you experience. I would hope that's starting to go down, but I, I really I don't so. know. I, I don't really know don't either. Know. It's not it's not something I feel connected to. You know, so I don't know. I mean, at the time, that was my whole world. I knew every organization, you know, all the different organizations. And you'd, you know, run into people yeah. and say, oh, well, you served with YWAM. Well, I served with Team Mania. Well, I served with... Yeah, you know this. So I don't know if it's yeah different. Um, yeah, but you have to run into it because I know yeah. people to post to Facebook all the time. They're going somewhere to, and I always want to ask, what exactly did you do? Right, and, and and it's not a judgment. It's just I I hope it's something that you know has some tangible help yeah. to people. Um, so so advice. So what advice would I give? Uh, I think whatever you're doing needs to be connected with um, local organizations. Uh, and people mm. that are from there who know what they're doing. Going in a place of how can I help is very different than the um, American uh, way of, especially the American, um, <laughs> sorry, my dog again. <laughs> the, uh, the, the way of showing up and saying, I know how best yeah, to do this. Yeah, like a very paternalistic right. kind of Right, and, and especially the idea of teenagers doing it. It's just mm. gross. I mean, like it, it really yeah. is that that's I, I have some grace for myself because I was 16 and I grew up in this in, in this world that told me this was the right thing to do so I, I have to have some grace for myself there and um, you know and I'm, we're not really talking about the problematic I mean there were things that we did that were bad like things that we did that were actively damaging things hmm. so I, so advice I would give is making sure that you're working with people that are involved locally that are not, and, and so that you're not coming in being the one that says, I know how to do this. Let me do this. I'm here to do this, right? Um, what, are, what actually are the needs and how can you help in a way that doesn't cause additional damage? You know, if you're helping in a way that takes away somebody's job, mm-hmm. then you're not helping. You're, you're, you're just not. Um, so I think that's important. Um, honestly, that's probably the biggest thing. Uh, and also, is it the best use of money um is it the is it a responsible way to spend that money uh if you're spending you know we we spent five thousand dollars per person on those trips probably i mean i'm I'm sure we raised five thousand dollars each and there's no way that the cost of that trip was five thousand dollars for 18 of us Mm. to be um, there's there's no way oh yeah 18 times five thousand yeah uh that's, uh, I'm not doing I don't the math. Do math but... I mean, 100,000 would be, I don't know. Just 
If it was um, if it was twenty and it was just five thousand, that would be a hundred thousand. Kelsey just let her talk. Just a little under a hundred thousand dollars <laughs> for you math people out there. <laughs> we did good. Yeah, well, you know, but like I, you know, the, the the effect of altruism talks about. We've talked about this before. It's like how can you do the most? It's our moral responsibility to do the most good, right? And they've crunched numbers for thirty five hundred dollars in bed nets equals one life saved, right? So yeah. you know, but there's also this idea of um, if you go to a place like over the course of your life, then could you inspire other people to give? Could you become more involved in this issue? Right. So I, I, I mean, I believe in the power of of travel and going there. Even many of the people, the leaders of the effective altruism movement, are people who had those firsthand experiences. Yeah. First, I, and I think that being there are parts of the fact that being 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, and seeing parts of the world on my on my own. Like, I wasn't traveling with family, you know. There, I didn't have friends from home that I was going with. I mean, I would join these teams and then go. Um, that was hugely, I mean, beneficial to me. Hmm. I don't think it comes down to just numbers. I don't think you can just say, well, if it's this much money would yeah. do this and that much money would do that. Therefore, I can't go on this trip because my... $2,500 would be better spent doing this other thing. And, and I don't think it can really come yeah. down. I agree. It can't come down to something that um, s- simplistic. Um, if you're traveling with an organization mm. that is probably getting rich on your mm. yeah. service. In quotes. Yeah, service in quotes. Um, then you've got another issue to look at. Uh, so that was certainly what I think we were doing Um where you know that organization was making bank on mm-hmm. teenagers um yeah i think if people to me i think if people go with this idea and i still see this from students all the time come up to me after i give a talk or something and they're like i'm going on a missions trip any advice and and to me it's and that's how most people go to the places that i, I end up going right a lot of the world that's a lot of people's first experience out traveling the world is these types of trips going to to, to like developing countries mm-hmm. like there's not much other reason like you are if you're on an airplane to go into honduras like half the people in planes will be wearing matching t-shirts, t-shirts right that said and it's always like alliteration of like uh um uh, i don't even know what in for nepal would be a yeah what i don't know uh-huh. you know Helping Honduras, that's an easy one, right? Yeah, but, like, I don't know what for, when Nepal would be. But I think if people go with this idea that, no, you're really not going to do anything, but you're going to go and have these experiences and, and meet people. And I think that this, that intention and that mm-hmm. stepping into those experiences with that in mind, uh, because you're probably not going to do good. I think you should like, let's do not do harm. Yeah, right? maybe start with that. And then maybe I'll learn something. Mm-hmm. Uh seems to be like the best mindset going to these experiences. Yeah. I, and we've talked about this, but <clears throat> I think my wife's trip to Haiti, which she took, which is more of a service mission. I would, I think I hate to speak for her, but I think she would say it probably changed her more than yeah. sure. the people that were there. Right. Mm-hmm. We all know the economic forces, the many years of devastation in Haiti, the political forces that have caused it to be what it is. But she came back with something that I don't think she'd have gotten you know, traveling to a poorer part of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Now that can be impactful too, but Haiti is a whole different game. So maybe that's part of what it teaches us, but that's probably not how we're presenting ourselves. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm using a broad brush here, but presenting ourselves when we walk into Nepal, right. which is, Hey boy, we've got Walmarts and <laughs> lots of food. And so we're here to teach you how to do that. But yeah, that's, it's much more complex than that. Mm-hmm. Quote that stands out to me. I don't know who said it, but the, I think it might have been Gandhi. To the hungry, food is God, mm. and that's why I always worry about those types of organizations if they're doing that. Right? right? Uh, like obviously, our God blesses us because look at the things that we have, and we can afford medical attention for our children. But you're you're struggling. Um, but that that said, um, you know, we may have talked. We talked about this with Life in Abundance with Justin Arducci, the very first episode of the podcast, where I travel with them. It's a it's a um, Christian NGO, mm-hmm. and they're not going to convert souls, from what I know. 
right? Like right. they're they're working with existing churches on the ground. I really feel like that can be like an efficient way that you have this thing in common to hit the ground running. So I don't want people to think that every mission trip today, even then, probably was to like like win souls. Like it's like the counting that your trips were doing. Right. I yeah. I want to make sure that that's clear that I'm talking about this very specific youth movement, mostly in the mid to late nineties. Um, that I think I can speak for that. I think I can speak yeah. for that numbers-based, save souls. It's about eternity. And I mean, the thing is, the organization I've traveled with, it's been, I mean, there are some people that, people that call it a cult Yeah, are mm. not necessarily wrong. Mm. Right? Like, I mean, the, the people that were part of it even more than I was who lived there and worked there. I mean, I can't, I have to take that perspective too, that I was involved not just in evangelical youth missions, but in a spiritually controlling environment. And so um, I know a lot of the decisions that we made, I I just can't, um, you know, I need to emphasize that we were teenagers who were taught and that, that, that hell part that yeah. we weren't afraid of hell for ourselves. We were all very assured of our own salvation, yeah. but when you combine kids who want to do the right thing and be good, moral, lead, lead good moral lives, it is like you were saying, Jay, that is the logical um, conclusion for that, which is I have to do this. This is what I'm supposed to do. Yeah. It's funny. <clears throat> you mentioned a cult and, and I have a similar background, probably not as extreme um, as yours, but, all you have to do is survey the country on people that were part of youth groups growing up. Mm-hmm. And mine was extremely liberal and very supportive and all those things. But there's still this underlying piece of it that is, I mean, you can't get a bunch of teenagers in a room and sing three songs without them getting cultish. I mean, it's just the way it is. So you've mentioned that a couple of times, and I just want to tell you, I, I – completely get that. I mean, it makes complete sense to me. And I can see myself in another world Mm -hmm. having been 16 and having a a youth group that I loved as much as I did mine, but pushing that agenda, I'd have gone. Yeah. I would have gone. And I would have, I would feel exactly like you do to say what good and what harm did I do? And why did someone tell me to do that? And what are those people doing now? Mm -hmm. Um, I feel that way now anyway. Um, but it is out of the, the goodness of your heart. You're trying to figure out, okay, how do I do the most good? Mm-hmm. Um, and you realize that may not have been it for you. Right. Yeah. 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 I'm with you. Here, I'll, I'll tell a little story because I think it illustrates kind of the, the shift and where the, where the shift occurs to, to stepping away from that. Um, I think when you um, – I knew someone who had been to India, and uh, this was a, uh, a pastor. And he'd been to India on a missions trip to decide if their church should be involved there. And this is, I knew this person when I was a teenager. And, and I remember hearing him say how much he hated India. He just, he just hated it. And it, mm-hmm. and it wasn't just, it was too hot and you know, it wasn't, you know, it, and it was dirty or whatever, all these negative things that get said. It was, it was dark. It was oppressive. It was all these things. Right. And I remember feeling defensive. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I don't know if I had been to India or not um, when I first heard him saying that. But I remember Nepal's not too far away. And I remember being like, what do you, what do you mean it's, it's horrible? Don't call it horrible. And then um, the summer after, so the summer after I was in Nepal and I was doing this church planning trip, um, I was in India. And so this is all kind of smushed into the same time mm. period. And, and um, I, had this, I had this ring that I had bought in Nepal uh, and I bought it because the boy I liked wore a similar one. And so I bought it. So I was, this was like sentimental, nice. you know, like I yeah. bought this ring and, and, and I wore it. And so, so it's the next summer and, and I'm in, I'm in India and, and there's this, there's this woman that we meet with and she's, a, they, they, they tell us she's a prophet and she's there to pray for us and she's praying for us. And, and she starts praying over me and, and she, she looks at my ring and she, and she says, she thinks there are demons attached to my ring. And she says, I think there are demons attached to your ring. Because she, and she's like, where did it come from? And I said, well, it came from Nepal. I bought it in Nepal last summer. And she said, well, you know, Nepal is so dark 
and Nepal is so oppressive. And now here's the thing. It's all the stuff that you can find me writing one year earlier mm. in my diary that I have been told, right? Mm. It's the exact same stuff I had affirmed one year earlier. When you were in Nepal, you were writing the same Nepal, things? When I'm in Nepal, I'm writing, this is was, what I... She was I, told that. I was told. Yeah. This is what yeah. I've been told about Nepal. So it's here's this. dark. Right? It's dark. There's it's demons. oppressive. There's demons. There's... It, there was this weird thing about, like, Nepal's so apathetic that people don't care about anything. I mean, wow. it was these... That's what I was told going into it. I wrote it down. I bought it. I probably bought it for most of that experience. I mean, I mm. believed racist, terrible things while I was there. Mm. So a year later, she's telling me this stuff about my ring. And I know I bought that ring because I liked a boy. Mm-hmm. And I knew I bought that ring. And I, and I didn't believe there were demons attached to, to trinkets. Like, that was not a belief that I, I had heard it from a lot of people. And I didn't believe it. I just thought it was nonsense. I don't know why I thought it was nonsense when I thought so many other things were real. But, and, mm-hmm. and I remember just being, and it was an intense spiritual experience where everyone's praying and everyone's so passionate. And, and I remember going, you don't get to say Nepal is dark. You don't get to say it's full of demons. It's nice there. Mm. <laughs> the people are, like, I met nice people there. I met kind people. I, it, uh, it's beautiful. Wow. It's, um, and, and, and I, and um, she thought I should throw away the ring. And I refused to throw away the ring because I got it because I like that boy. <laughs> and I refused. Um, but it was also a moment of, that's all it took was one year. And I don't know, I mean, that's a whole other story of, of what that shift was. But I just remember, I could have, if I hadn't gone, here, let me try to sort this out. If I hadn't gone, I still would have heard all those same messages. Mm. Going allowed me to undermine those messages. Wow, that that's something. Yeah, so was that kind of the, it was the start it of the snowball. Important. Yeah, it was, yeah. It was an important. I, mean, that I have those important. moments too. I remember there were moments where I said, oh, wait. <clears throat> something doesn't compute mm-hmm. and my wife and I call them the bricks okay. if you're building your brick wall out of all these very uh you know these these deep dogmatic beliefs when one of them stops working you pull it out of the wall and the wall's a little weaker mm-hmm. and then you lose another one and you pull it out of the wall and the wall's a little weaker well guess what happens after you lose three or four of those it starts to fall and yeah. it sounds like that was your first one yeah I would say it was yeah. I I love that the experience of meeting the human beings that live there taught you more about what what was being said. Yeah. Dark, lazy. I mean, it sounds like the same things we would say about people. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. is. I mean, it, R- racist or socioeconomic tropes that we say in the United States, which is people are lazy, they don't want to work, they just right. want handouts, and thus they're not worth it. And we say that when you meet people and you actually are in a relationship with people – and I wasn't in relationship with people in Nepal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I never got to the point where, where there were relationships, but it was it was still meeting people. It was still seeing people. And it was this narrative doesn't make any sense. This narrative of, of demonic darkness and wow. evil. And now, I mean, I've got a Nepal, Nepalese brother-in-law and family mm. and my niece and nephew. I mean, really? like, yeah. So <laughs> that's the other side wow. of the story. That's we're like, awesome. you know. And so I will say this. There was all this talk. You know, my diary has all this stuff about... I thought I was going to be a missionary in Nepal forever. Yeah. I thought I was going to go back. He's put a passion in me to see Nepal reach. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was... If I truly heard what I thought I did, (laughs) then I could be living in Nepal forever. You're killing me. That's because the that's because the 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 boy the 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 boy I loved also wanted to be a missionary. The change begins so here with us, weird. with me. Even Nepal that's will never be the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's the, oh, it's it's bad. It's real bad. I'm so well known. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So I I but I I go man. Nepal really did end up being you know yeah. <laughs> just not the way that I thought it yeah. was going to be. It's, I think we're going to have to go longer. We'll Sorry. Do a second episode. Right. No, that's fine. Because okay. there's stuff. No, no, I, no, I mean, if, just, are you okay? okay? No, I'm good. Are you okay? In time? I'm good. I'm just telling yeah. where time is. He's, keep keep yeah, your keeper time. Um, there's no outline, Jay. Is that all I do? I'm just the keeper. Of time. <laughs> You're the keeper of time. Uh, I, I find it so interesting that like, um, you know, when I was in Nepal with the monks in the monasteries, which you probably what? never stepped foot in the monastery, did you? I don't want to say on this podcast. <laughs> Okay. Okay. <laughs> I will tell you later. Okay. All right. <laughs> Sorry. But it was like so. It was so no, colorful. We were, we were up. We we um, went on a long walk up into the um, hills where there were the prayer flags and all those sorts of things. Yeah, um, and like the chanting, oh, and like yeah. the chanting was like almost like rapping, and the artwork. They took colored sand and they would make these like art works of art, and they would just wipe it away. And 
was so colorful. And, you know, in India, too, like to say India is not colorful is like that's the exact opposite of what it is. They were able to manipulate a pretty specific experience that we had where in the same town where you've got that monastery, you also have a Hindu temple uh, where they do a lot of animal sacrifices. Mm. And so now it's very celebratory. From what I understand now, it's actually very celebratory. Mm. People come with a goat or a chicken sacrifice and then they get the meat and they go and they have a barbecue or they go eat and you know there's a picnic and it's a big family it's a pilgrimage experience sort of um it was really easy for them to spin that as darkness mm. um to be 15 and 16 years old and watching goats get slaughtered yeah, and their blood, blood yeah right i mean that that was very easy Just culturally to... like we would never see that but like in right. nepal they would see that when they're eating a goat right and so right. it was very easy for them to take some very specific imagery and then yeah. well and as a teenager you don't see that sort of no. stuff right but you we all could get in a car right now and drive to a slaughterhouse and experience oh, all right. of it but of course as a teen you're going to see that and go oh my gosh oh, the that's difference unusual between, right the difference between that and you know whatever your cheeseburger is i mean like uh <sighs> yeah yeah that's a, that's a real lack of perspective but oh, I, I get it it would have affected me too i went to a bullfight when i was 19 years old mm-hmm. and i thought it was the most grotesque thing i'd have ever seen mm-hmm. and then i got in the cab and went back to the hotel and had a hamburger yeah, yeah. <laughs> right yeah complex man so um i know you still continue to travel quite a bit yeah. how how have these experiences influenced the way that you travel now and uh, i think you've also traveled to mother Teresa's. Yeah. I don't know if that's something you want to talk about too. Well, so uh, um, that's two big questions. I, got, I know. Right. Mother, <laughs> I got complicated feelings about Mother Teresa uh, and missionaries of charity. Uh, I have, I did volunteer with them as a teenager, and then um, about six years ago. Uh, so I'm an English professor, and um, our university does service trips they do not do evangelical i didn't do any it wasn't evangelism it was a service trip and i like traditional like traditional uh, every school every school probably does um and uh even though it's a christian university i should say okay so um uh so i went back to india and we they do volunteer with missionaries of charity there too um and uh, it's it's one of those things where to go to have seen it as a teenager when I was still pretty I was beginning to kind of deconstruct some of that, but then uh, seeing it as an adult was all uh, you know it was very intellectually different experience and emotionally different and also being in charge of a bunch of college students mm. um, to I was trying to help that like I wanted them to. Uh, I wanted them to be more responsible travelers than I had been, and mm. I wanted to introduce them things. Now, volunteering with missionaries of charity is an ethically complicated thing that's probably its own its own story. Um, but I will say that I, I would love to travel more with our uh, service organization service group from the university. But uh, I I would like that to be I would like to do that. Because I want to help students travel. Oh, just a minute. There's probably mail or something. <laughs> yeah, the neighbor could, you know, be going into their house. Yeah, right. My dog would not do that. Oh, she watches out for us. She's my guard chihuahua. <laughs> when she got there. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah she, she's better. Um. Sorry, let me rethink that just a second. Uh, so the travel that I've done, you know, since being a teenager has not been, and since being involved in missions has, has not been missions focused. Um, when I've traveled in a service format, I've done so hoping to um, teach college students to travel responsibility. Mm-hmm. Think, about, think about some of these things we're talking about. Um, uh, you know, I... I took a cruise with my daughter last summer and cruising of course is all kinds of ethically and environmentally everything that we do in life does everything right? Is, like, right it's just the importance of ex- is examining that, right right and so, like so it was being aware it was of to it. haiti i mean no, oh. it was to haiti oh my gosh i said the wrong thing we were talking about haiti it was to cuba it was to cuba okay just okay, cut well, the part where i said the yeah. wrong country okay um, i probably won't but that's okay it's really embarrassing <laughs> if you know it's okay okay yeah. just know that i'm super embarrassed okay. Wait, she's gonna sue that's all right you're gonna sue me yeah 
It was to Cuba. It's definitely not. Okay. Cuba. You gotcha. Um, and, uh, so it, even in taking my daughter there and, and I wasn't talking about her to, with her about like the ethics of cruising, but we were talking, we made sure we're, we're reading about Cuba. Mm-hmm. We're, we're trying to understand it. We're making sure that, you know, that, that we're reading books by Cuban authors before going to Cuba, not books about written by American authors about Cuba, that sort of thing. Mm. Um, and so I think that makes a difference. And then, uh, also looking for some sustainable travel practices. So like this summer, my mom and my kids and I are going to France and part of the trip is going to be through a organization that specifically it's tourism, but it is, you know, slow tourism, mm. you want to put it in quotes. It's, 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 um, uh, designed to be low impact and, um, you know, you're flying. It is a big impact, a big environmental impact, but still trying to slow down and, and that's not service. That's not in a, mm-hmm. in a low socioeconomic well, environment. Well, I think that's the difference that traveling can make though, right? If we yeah. spend your dollars right. responsibly and stay at like local hotels and visit local artisans right. and like that is really good for the, that's, that's a bigger impact that you're going to make than, yeah, absolutely. than most things that you're going to go do, right? right. Like paint so, a school so, that someone so else can paint. The question of how do I travel differently? I, I travel entirely differently. There, yeah. There's, um, first of all, I don't travel nearly as <laughs> a teenager. I traveled every summer because mm. when you're a teenager, you can ask people for money and they give it to you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dang it. As an adult, that's harder. <laughs> you can't be like, that's, Hey, will you fund my trip that, to France? That should be a giving rule in your book. <laughs> yeah. Ask for money while you're young kids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's like a cutoff where people get tired of that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so Mother Teresa. Um, yeah. Here's I. So I did some research on her. I mentioned a little bit. Where am I giving? And um, the, this researchers did kind of a survey of all the things that were written about her. And here's what their conclusion was: her rather dubious way of caring for the sick, her questionable political contacts, her suspicious management of the enormous sums of money she received, and her overly dogmatic views regarding in particular abortion contraception and divorce and i'm not sure what the beginning of all that was but that was kind of their, their criticism of mm-hmm. her and a lot of people at, like that visited saw patients there that in another environment would have been getting appropriate pain medications and, right. and were not is that mm-hmm. is that similar to the experience that you had when you were there so um yes uh I think it's one of those situations where you go, well, I suppose this is better than what that person could be experiencing, Mm. but is it, and and by that I mean, if you are a woman in India who has been abused and you have um, mental health issues and you have no care and maybe you've been in prison and I'm describing a particular home okay. that, where yeah. they say Sounds we house specific. women. It's, yeah. it's very specific. Um, and there are a lot of women that experience that yeah. in, in, I mean, a lot of women who have gone through trauma and abuse and prison and all these things in, in Calcutta, for example, um, Is a Mother Teresa home where you have a bed and some food and mm. some people to spend time with better than prison or a street? Probably. <laughs> I think so. Um, but when you look at it from the perspective of how much money mm. Mother Teresa, uh, when she was alive, brought into that, into the, or into the Catholic organization and into the church and, and, and how much money was donated, then you go, these people could have been in state-of-the-art hospitals mm. with actual mm. counselors and medical care. And and so you go, I guess it's better. Mm. Um, but it's definitely not good. Yeah. Here, um, here's so what... that, that's where I kind of fell with yeah. things where I'm like, I don't like that. I'm very uncomfortable with some of the, with the number of the things that I've seen there. Here's where those researchers kind of came down with that. Um, if the extraordinary image of Mother Teresa conveyed in the collective imagination has encouraged humanitarian initiatives that are genuinely engaged with those crushed by poverty, we can only rejoice. 
It is likely that she has inspired many humanitarian workers whose actions have truly relieved the suffering of the destitute and addressed the causes of poverty and isolation without being extolled by the media. So, like, you know, they think that the image of Mother Teresa is almost done more good good than, hmm. than actually what what she is done. but you know the, in all of this i think the, to kind of try to tie a bow on this jay because as you're the keeper of time uh i know that's important um is that you know we we go in with certain intentions when we're we go in with good we go in with good intentions mm-hmm. and i think it's really important to in question to question those intentions whether it's visiting mother Teresa's program mm-hmm. or going on a mission trip or going on a service learning trip mm-hmm. and like what we're actually going to be doing right and i think that's always has to be in the back of our minds of um you know, what, what good are we doing yeah i agree and so i know that the kind of religion especially christianity is has taken a bit of a beating uh Maybe a little bit in our conversation. Uh, Probably. And I sh- maybe I should say I'm a Christian. Okay. <laughs> I'm a Christian and I'm an English professor at a Christian university. I just became a Lutheran. Wow. Wow, you're doing it. <laughs> like yeah. last week? Yeah. Okay. I like stood Congra- up in front of people. Congratulations? I don't know. Is that what you say? I don't I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. Um, uh, so, but but I, one, one thing I think that as someone who comes from a more secular background, like – Folks who do good can say like, "Well, we're just doing good because it's the it's the thing to do. We're not driven by some like higher power." But the the fact of the matter is, and the research shows that religion inspires people to give more. So in the United States, sixty two percent of religious uh, affiliated people give to charities. People who are not religiously affiliated, forty six percent of them give. That's a pretty significant. Difference. So I, I think that we can't um, devalue the role of religion and 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 what it inspires people to do. Mm-hmm. I think we can question of how it is done, maybe. And and that was to like not just churches. That that was the stats we're giving to just like charitable organizations, not like churches. So the people religiously feel like give more. People want to learn more about you and come across your writing. Where can they find you? Sure, um, I'm on Twitter at Liz Br, and then um, on Facebook you can like my writing page, which is Liz Bolts Ranfeld Writer. Any parting thoughts, Liz J? Um, I can't, you know, I can't speak for all religious, all motivation that's related to religious for religious. Um, belief as far as giving um i can't condemn every organization i can't look at every i can't look at every teenage missionary that is going on some trip now and be like you're probably going to go do the same terrible things that i did Mm. um i can say i think i can safely say that um if you are that is very easy to manipulate young passionate morally driven people who want to be good and want to do um important things and we were always told oh the world's gonna think you're so weird and people are gonna say you're crazy and you just need to know that you know you're just doing the right thing and don't listen to them Mm. don't listen to the people that are saying that you're too extreme or what you're doing is uh should just be toned down um i think that I think that anybody that's telling you that <laughs> has a reason for telling you that other than just um, uh, you're doing the right thing. Mm. Um, if you're doing the right thing, it should be able to stand up to scrutiny from a lot of different places. And you can look, you should look at it economically, environmentally, uh, religious, from a religious perspective. Like if you are doing something that is right and that is good, it should be it should be able to stand up to, to that kind of scrutiny. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can't be afraid of that kind of scrutiny because if it falls apart, like you're talking about those bricks, if mm-hmm. it falls apart, then you should stop doing that thing. Mm-hmm. So don't just stick your fingers in your ears because somebody's criticizing an organization you love or a person that you respect. It's it's a lot more complicated than that. Yeah. 
Liz, I really appreciate your view of the world, the questions that you have asked through all these years and the way you're kind of reexamining the past. And so for all those things, you're definitely good people, and I appreciate you coming on. Well, thanks so much for uh, having me and coming over. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah. And <laughs> I think my face is a little bit red from this white Russian. It really I is. Strong. It doesn't take much alcohol for my oh, face to get red. They're so good. They were really good. I would not want a second one. Like. <laughs> I'm going to go celebrate my my father-in-law's birthday party. I don't want to show up drunk. Yeah, God loves that drink. (laughs) Jesus' favorite drink is the white Russian. So does the dude. If the dude abides. Jesus does not drink white Russian. It's just the dude. Oh, okay. All right. We're way deep in the Lebowski Thanks for listening to the Good People Podcast. Special thanks to my friend Jay Mormon for co-hosting and to Cliff Ritchie for the great tunes. You can listen to Cliff on Spotify or find him at cliffritchyart.com. Let's keep the good going. Please share, rate, and subscribe. We'd love to hear from you. Visit kelseytimmerman.com slash goodpeople to find show notes, suggest guests, learn more about my books, and tell us about the good you are doing in the world.